Welcome into All In with Adam, episode four. Guys, we are starting a journey down a wormhole today. This is going to be a three-part series that I'm titling Rehab. I don't really know what else to call it, but there's probably a better word because it's not just about rehab in of itself. And let me tell you why I want wanted to, to go down this road um, for these next three episodes. You know, in the first in the first episode that I launched, Psilocybin and God, I mentioned that I went to rehab and sort of grazed over some of my my history with alcohol and alcoholism. But what fascinated me was that um, that episode attracted a lot of people that were either in recovery or struggling in or with addiction of some kind. And it's weird because I don't identify as somebody in recovery. I don't think of myself as an alcoholic or a former alcoholic or recovering alcoholic. I suppose I am. If you ask me to define and unpack some of those terms, yeah, I I guess I am. But that's not how I I view myself. And I think part of that is because I'm so into being individualistic and individualism. And so that sort of separates me from a lot of that group identity uh, that is the community of recovery, right? Recovering alcoholics, Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, There's a lot of group thinking that goes along with that. And those communities are super beneficial. I'm not here to tell you that uh, that those don't have value or, or a purpose. But for me, that's not how I defined my own recovery. And really, I guess you could say this in a lot simpler of a way, and that's that um, you know, I personally don't believe you need to go sit in a church basement and drink shitty coffee in order to, to stay sober or find stability or happiness or balance in your life once you have moved on from, from addiction, whatever your, your drug of choice may have been. But when I think about all of the young men specifically that are out in the world that have trouble with addiction, with substances, with their relationships to those substances and how they involve those substances in their life and the problems that can come with that, man, there are a lot of things that I want to share with those people. And they're things that I don't know you would necessarily hear from the communities that are made available to you. If you were to go to Alcoholics Anonymous, you will hear very specific messages and rhetoric uh, that's around this idea of, of how to get sober. And those aren't wrong. They're not wrong. I'm not telling you to, uh, to not entertain some of those ideas. But for me, I have learned that sobriety, or rather a, a life outside of addiction, is a better way to say that, it is very personal. Your, your sobriety, your relationship to drugs, all the drugs in the world, you know, those relationships belong to you. And whatever balance you're able to find, in whatever way you're able to find it, I think there are varied paths here. I don't think there's one way to do this. And the way that I've done it is certainly uh, certainly unique. And in many ways, I was told that that my approach, where my instincts led me down this road, uh, I was told that that would fail by experts. And in, in many respects, they were wrong. And so I'm not here to tell you that I am the expert. But This story of what happened to me, or rather what my experience was, before rehab, during rehab, and after rehab, that process is one that I want to share with with the world. And I want to share it obviously specifically with um, anybody who has touched that world at all, this world of addiction and recovery. But I also... You know, there's another part of me that, that, that wants to share this story like, like for my grandkids. This is such a huge part of my identity. 
And to be honest, it's been years since I've revisited some of the stories that we're gonna that we're gonna cover over these next three episodes. And I'm really excited to get back into some of these stories and open them up because there are some absolutely brutal lessons, things that shaped me forever. Um, those lessons are buried in some of these stories. And in order for them to, to punch me again, right, in order for them to land again, sometimes you have to open the story all the way up and dig, dig back down to the bottom to feel what this moment felt like again. Or just to, to revisit the philosophies and the concepts. Why did this happen? How did I get to this place? I think that's a really, a really important part of recovery in general is going to those places again, you know, not, not forgetting what it used to be like. So when you have these heavy emotional moments, good or bad or any type of breakthrough, I think it's important for our own psycho- psychology to revisit some of those experiences through conversation, through storytelling, and um, to, to keep ourselves fresh and connected and plugged in to some of these more powerful moments in our lives. And so for me, the next three episodes are, are going to be filled with some particularly powerful moments, powerful stories, things that that really help shape who I am, and I'm excited to, to share them with you guys. So as I was writing some notes out for this podcast, I realized that this was definitely a three-parter in that there is before rehab, during rehab, and after rehab, and those are going to be the three sections. So today we're talking about uh, before I went to rehab, and this is going to span all the way back until, man, I, I guess we'll pick up at age 12 or 13 when you first really have somewhat of an identity formed. Uh, so we'll start there, and I'm going to take you up until I was age 21 because I went to rehab before I turned 22 years old. So there are a lot of what you would call war stories in here. Um, and, you know, I want to close out this podcast after I kind of run you through some of the things that happened that led me up to the decision to go to rehab because I did decide to go to rehab myself. I want to close this out by giving you some of the the darker elements that happened within here, and we're just going to call those the red flags. Some of the things that that genuinely led me to the decision to go to rehab, and I think all of this in itself is certainly going to be a, a packed podcast, so uh, I got a lot of fun stories. Not, not all fun, but some interesting stories to share with you. And one other thing, before we dive in, uh, there is a hotline for this podcast. I'm going to put the phone number on the screen if you're watching on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast app, that phone number will be in the description of the podcast. And if you want you can call and leave a voicemail uh, or text that number as well. It's just a Google voice number. And a lot of people have done this. They've called and left voicemails. But the problem is everybody keeps calling with current political events. And hopefully for some obvious reasons, that, that's not a route that I'm going to go down right away. So if there are any other questions that you have uh, pertaining to life, relationships, drugs, philosophy, some of the bigger picture topics that I'm, I'm trying to address inside of this podcast. That's the sort of thing that I would like to entertain. Uh, when it comes to current events, like what Trump did yesterday, I'm not gonna touch that stuff, not on this podcast, at least not anytime soon. Uh, but again, the number is on the screen if you're watching on YouTube, um, and then that, that same hotline number will be in the description if you are listening on Apple. So picking up when I was 12 or 13 years old, you know, I was raised by a single mom. My parents divorced when I was about four or five years old. I really don't have any memories of them together, and I visited my dad on the weekends, but I was very much raised by a single mom, and she did about as good of a job as you could possibly do, I think, but I was a very rebellious teenager, but there was an irony with my preteen era, and it's that I was I was very smart. I was smart in school. I did very, very well, but something happened when I turned 12, 13, 14, well, 
puberty and a surge of testosterone is probably what happened, but I became very rebellious in a lot of different contexts. And in middle school, when I was in eighth grade, I actually got expelled from middle school. And it wasn't for one particular thing, it was because I got suspended three times in a row from the eighth grade. And this was all in the span of like a month. It was just a bad month. Hormones were were raging, I imagine. But, um, you know, and, and I really can't remember all of the details of exactly what happened. Uh, this was actually the book that I wrote when I was you know, at 16, I published a small novel, and it was the story of how I got expelled. I haven't read that book in 15 years, but, um, you know, I remember two of the situations, the, the, these suspensions that led to a, an expulsion. One of them was a teacher asked me to pull my pants up. It was cool at the time to keep your pants low, so my pants were low, and I just said no. I said, no, my pants are where they are, and that's that. So, you know, insubordination written up, and I got suspended from school for a few days, um, something else happened, I don't remember the second one, but the third one, uh, the third suspension, I had brought a skateboard to school, and they tried to take my skateboard from me, and there was a weird physical altercation where a teacher tried to grab it from me, and I pulled it back, and the skateboard kind of hit his leg, and then it would, you know, it wasn't a fight, but it was like a weird physical altercation, and they kind of went into this like assault sort of territory. It, it was very strange, but ultimately that led to another suspension, just insubordination, not listening, that sort of thing. So I had to go to a hearing um, to the with the superintendent of schools uh, in our county, I suppose, and that didn't go well either. I back talked and, you know, <laughs> shot myself in the foot in so many ways. I just wasn't interested in uh, in complying in any degree. Kind of holds true all the way, <laughs> all the way up until now, depending on the context. But I wasn't interested in complying. I was very individualistic. I was stubborn. I knew that I was smart. I wasn't the average bad kid, and I wasn't a dumb kid either, and that was one of the things that made my mom and teachers and a lot of other adults in my life so frustrated, is they would say, well, why do you behave this way? You're not dumb. i say, I know, but bleh, whatever, you know, preteen nonsense excuse I had at the time for not taking personal responsibility, you know, of my own actions, and so this isn't actually part of the alcohol story, but it is an interesting story. I got expelled to, to a place called Radio Station Road Academy, which is no longer a um, school at all, as it shouldn't be, man. This was a fucked up place. This was a school that was like seventh grade through 12th grade all put together in the same classrooms. It didn't make any sense. It was basically like a giant house, I guess is what you would call this place, though it was a government building, but it was two stories. There were maybe 10 classrooms on each story, so like very, very small building. There were maybe 200 people in the building um, at any given time, and let me tell you some of the things I saw when I went to this school. I'm in eighth grade, so I'm 13, maybe 14. I saw kids having sex on the bus. I saw fights that would break out in the classroom, and the teachers would, like, egg on the fights. Like, get him. Fuck him up. Fuck him up. Like, I saw that happen. Um, I saw teachers flirting with students in really, really creepy, inappropriate ways. I saw... Man, you know, um, remember those like old school protractors? I mean, maybe it's not old school, maybe they still use them, but it's like the little dial thing with the pencil and, you you know, helps you make like circles and shapes and shit on piece, pieces of paper. So I saw kids steal ink from the art room and take the pointy needle part of the protractor and tattoo themselves inside of this school. And this is like, 
There are seniors in high school who have failed three times. So they're like 20 or 21 years old in class with 13-year-olds. Like, it was so inappropriate and wrong for so many reasons. This was a horrible place to go to school. But I got expelled from eighth grade towards the end of the school year. So I only had to go to this place for like three months or so. It was weird. It was really weird. But this sort of set the tone for like my teenage experience in that... um, you know, <laughs> I was I was willing I was willing to be the bad kid. It didn't really bother me to be rebellious, and it came with some trouble, and I ate it. I was I was willing to 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 be that guy. Um, I don't really know why. I think you know perhaps a lack of a strong male figure in my life that that could have been part of it. it it's really tough to say, you know, and even. To, you know, nowadays I, I would describe myself, my friends would describe me as very hard headed and very stubborn and sometimes narrow minded as well. But that was much more evident back then. And so, of course, with, with that kind of context of just being a rebellious young teen who didn't want to listen to anybody, it only makes sense that I would find my way to uh, drugs and alcohol at some point. And I think the first time that I got high, smoking pot, I was maybe 12 years old which is, oh my God, it is unbelievably, that's way too young. It's maybe 12, maybe 13. So I smoked weed for, for a few years with friends, small groups of friends. It wasn't like this was known. I certainly hid it from, from my mom and from other people for quite a while. And then alcohol came into the picture around age 15 or so. And I actually drank many times before I got drunk for the first time. The first time I got drunk, uh, I, I remember that I was at least 16 years old because I drove. And I drove to a house party. Um, weird, weird story about this house party. This was at this girl's house who her parents were the town morticians. And they had a, a, a like an alarm system on their house that was basically linked to like the police department. So when somebody died and there was a body, there was a very specific alarm that went off on this entire property. So it was a really weird fucking place to have a party because you're partying and you hear like this, gang, gang, gang. We're like, what was that noise? Oh, somebody died. Like somebody died like in our town, you know, and it would go off several times a night while you're there partying. So this was an odd place to have a party. But her parents were, were those kind of parents who allowed uh, teenager parties to happen there. Of course, on the premise that at least they're going to they're gonna be safe while they're doing it. You can agree or disagree with that. But that's the kind of parents they were. It's the kind of house that this, this place was. So we're there uh, this one particular night. And I had driven there. And I had, I think, six or seven Smirnoff Ices. Go figure, right? And I remember that I had parked in the driveway and I had to move my car. I had to move my car like 15 feet. But I knew that I was drunk. And I remember having like this deep existential crisis about having to drive my car even 15 feet back. And I remember getting in an argument with somebody there about like, I'm not going to drive drunk. They're like, dude, can you just like pull right there? Like you're not going on a road. <laughs> so I know I was at least 16 because of that, that particular detail. But yeah, at this party, I got absolutely hammered, threw up in the yard. But it was fun. It was really, really fun. And there's a theme that's going to that kind of emerges here as I, as I go through some of these stories, you will see how many positive associations there were with alcohol. There's a ton of them. I'll give you another example of a, of a strong positive association. And you can probably tell from the look on my face or the tone of my voice that, that these stories bring me joy. They're, they're, it's fun talking through some of these stories. So, you know, this party phase is sort of beginning. I'm going to parties on the weekends when I can. But, but one of the other weirder things that happen is that 
drinking became very and smoking weed, I guess it became very normalized um, where I would I went to to high school high most days, like four days out of the week. I was getting stoned before I went in at you know, 7 a.m. I mean, I'm smoking in the parking lot or, or I would pull off in my neighborhood in my car um, at age, you know, 16 to get stoned and then go to school that way. And drinking wasn't quite the same way. I wouldn't do that every day before school at all. But there were numerous times where somebody would bring alcohol to school, like we would bring, bring Bailey's Irish cream and put that in the milk cartons at school. That, that happened a bunch. Um, one particular story that I always remember, uh, we used to have these like flavored Dasani water machines, strawberry flavored water, stupid. And uh, we would get those, and for some reason, we thought Everclear was awesome. So like grain alcohol, which is just basically rubbing alcohol, it's totally undrinkable. But we used to get these flavored Dasani waters, and we would pour the Everclear inside of them. So it's just like, oh my God, it's just gasoline, strawberry flavored gasoline is what it is. And you know, I was in jazz band in high school, and I remember one day, right before the bell rang, my buddy Zach, there was a little closet in this big band room, and uh, my buddy Zach said, hey, come here, come in this little little closet. They would store instruments in there. And I went in there, and he says, chug this. And it was one of the Dasanis filled with a bunch of Everclear in it. And the trick was that you don't just chug it like normal. You put the water bottle up, and then you absolutely crush it with your hands. And so what it does is it just forces this tremendous amount of liquid down your throat and into your body. And so that's what I did. I didn't ask how much was in it. I just said, okay, and just absolutely demolished, you know, 16 ounces of this strawberry gasoline. And no kidding, within like five seconds, the bell rings, like class is starting. And I had the first song, which was James Brown's Soul Man. And I go to sit down and play, and I am... I'm getting shit-faced by the second. I mean, like, each passing moment, I'm just, like, falling (laughs) into this pit of drunkness. And I was almost blacked out by the end of the song. But what's funny is my playing got shittier as the song went on. By the end of the song, I don't even think we finished the song. I think the band teacher just cut it and was like, what is your problem? Like, what are you doing? I I got kicked out. (laughs) kicked out of that class for just he thought I was messing with him because I was talking nonsense you know oh and I remember just like passing out in the hallway and he was a cool teacher he didn't actually write me up but you know there were a lot of things like that you know and to me that story is funny is it appropriate is it a is it a good story you can make the argument no that that's a shitty story but it's funny it's objectively funny And I had a lot of these positive associations. The, you know, I talked about this in the tactical artistry episode. The the up and down nature of life, those extremes have always had an appeal to me. So even though this was, I guess you could say, like a a high risk thing to do, getting drunk in school, getting stoned before high school, being the bad kid in whatever context you you want to say, you know, that was appealing to me. I liked collecting these wild stories. My life felt more fun than other people's. I felt like even though we weren't a particularly popular group of kids, it wasn't like we were the football stars or anything. For me, high school was 
being a musician and skateboarding, right? So we're not like the the super cool kids, but I felt like I was a part of the cool kids because we had the cool stories. We had these badass stories, at least as we perceived them. Um, and the roller coaster ride that was this party phase, the rebellion, that had this this crazy appeal to me. Still does in some ways. So me and my, my group of friends, we were definitely big, big into partying. But if I'm being honest, it was almost exclusively pot and alcohol. Really, there weren't very many hard drugs around. Um, there were there were definitely pills, Percocets and Oxys. That stuff was around, but not, not in my immediate friends group. I mean, sometimes we would get things like that, but it wasn't a real staple in, in my particular friends group. It was really just pot and alcohol. You know, another time we had... Um, good family friends of mine who were sort of in this group. It was several brothers. They had a big family. That family had a church, and there was a church van. And there was a plan that we had developed that this act this actually worked, this plan. So, so I had worked at a summer camp called River Valley Ranch. It was in northern Maryland. It was a big Christian summer camp. They had horseback riding, skateboarding camp, paintball camp. Uh, adventure camp, I mean, all all sorts of things. It it was a big, big camp facility that was closed in the winter. And we had developed this plan with me and this this family of brothers and maybe like seven or eight other friends, big friends group, probably 10 kids. We had organized this way to basically get the church van, pack it full of teenage boys, drive up into the mountains of northern Maryland, and party at a camp that had been completely shut down for the winter. And we actually did this. We had this web of lies between all of our parents where um, this person thought they were at this person's house and then that those person's parents thought that they were over here. It was a whole network of lies that somehow held together. I don't know how that ship didn't sink, but it held water. And we packed ourselves in this effectively stolen church van and drove a bunch of boys up to... Uh, up to the mountains, and we cut a chain at this camp and drove, uh, I knew the back roads because I'd worked at that camp and been there for a few years over, over summers, and uh, drove way up to this this campsite that was shut down, brought Everclear and a couple ounces of pot and just partied. Oh, man. You know, so it's another one of those positive associations. I inevitably look back fondly on stories like that. I mean, it's fun. It's really, really fun. You could make a stupid little movie out of a story like that. And I've got a lot of stories like that. So at this point, it's all pretty much positive. You know, I managed to not get in a lot of trouble in high school. I suppose I got in trouble in like like classroom behavioral settings. I had a lot of teachers that didn't like me. I definitely got written up a number of times for for different things, but I didn't really get suspended from high school. I didn't get in that kind of trouble. I somehow didn't get in in any legal trouble. I suppose I got close a couple times. I have a few weird stories with with cops, things like that, but but I managed to not get in that much trouble. But there was one part of high school that really messed me up, and it wasn't in a behavioral context or anything. It, it was um, It was actually from a relationship. So we're gonna call this heartbreak number one. Now, relationships in general are something that I want to get more into in this podcast because um, I've I've had several long-term relationships with women, and I've learned a ton from every single one of them. And I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of guys that listen to this podcast or just to follow me on drum platforms that are just a little bit younger than me. And man, I would love to save you some time in the category of relationships. So I'd like to revisit relationships as its own topic down the road in this podcast, but. Um, 
this particular relationship, my high school relationship, it was a brutal one. You know, her and I dated for maybe a year and a half in high school, which is a long time for a high school relationship. It was serious for what it was. Um, and she was a little bit younger. I was 17 when she was 15. And, you know, I partied and she partied a little bit. And ultimately, sparing you some of the details, she cheated on me. And, you know, that that's not as egregious of a thing to do at that age than it is when you're older because everybody does stupid shit when you're 15, 16, 17. It's not like I was blameless. Um, I, I didn't cheat on her, certainly, but but it, it absolutely broke my fragile little teenage heart. It shattered me, man. I didn't know how to deal with that. I didn't know that you could be hurt that bad by somebody that you trusted. I had never encountered a situation in life like that, and I had no tools at hand to cope or to deal with the heartbreak uh, that that caused me. So I leaned into alcohol. Obviously, it was the only thing that I had on hand at my, at my disposal. Um, and, and this was when I first began drinking alone. I began drinking alone a lot, maybe four or five days a week. This was some of the first times that I had ever blacked out were actually not in social environments, but it was, it was alone. And weirdly, there were just liquor stores in our town that didn't ID or card me, so it wasn't difficult to actually get it. I also worked at Outback Steakhouse, and you know sometimes I would work in the back of the kitchen. There were liquor rooms back there, and so there was a couple times where I would grab a bottle of liquor. And being a 140-pound teenager, you know it didn't really require that much liquor to to get me you know good and fucked up. So it was um, it was for one reason or another it wasn't hard to have alcohol around, and drinking just became much more of a regular part of my life. So after the breakup, I'm drinking alone a whole lot. Um, I had also begun regularly smoking cigarettes. So pouring a drink and lighting a cigarette or sitting on the back porch and smoking a whole pack of cigarettes while my mom was was asleep inside. You know, it was like my day began at 10 p.m. Once my mom went to bed, then I knew I could start drinking and start smoking cigarettes and I could bring a little bowl out on the back porch and that was sort of my move. And I think in part, you know, my mom definitely knew that I had smoked cigarettes a little bit and I think she had found alcohol a couple times, but you know, there was only so much control she was willing to exercise over me. There was an element of like, you're going to move out in like a year, right? Like how 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 much do you want to clamp down on a 16, 17-year-old? You know, they're relatively close to adulthood. And so in, in a lot of ways, she she didn't give up on me. She would certainly give me a really hard time and there were still some punishments that I had to had to deal with, but I think in a lot of ways she sort of knew this was like a Nietzsche thing that a good mother will necessarily fail. That that you know, part of the deal is you got to let them go in a certain context. And so as strict as she was in many ways, she got less strict as I got older because I had to make some of these decisions for myself. Um, I had to learn the hard way, as we're going to find out throughout this series. So we're around age 17 or so. I'm drinking regularly with friends. I'm partying with friends at work. I'm getting drunk at work. I'm smoking weed at work at Outback. Um, I'm drinking alone at night. Alcohol and weed are very much a part of my life. But I think I would have stayed that course if it wasn't for one particular event because I got very much derailed from the path that I was on due to a bad acid trip. So Outback Steakhouse, which by the way is a great company. I loved working for Outback. I had an awesome boss. It was a really, really cool job. I, I don't know if OSI or Outback Steakhouse Incorporated is still as cool as it was back then, but shout out Outback. It was an awesome first job to have and I learned a ton. 
But they had a Christmas party every year. It was ironically at the same, it was at this big hotel, but it was the same hotel that my parents had gotten married at. So it was kind of interesting, but um, this was in Maryland, and I, I can't remember the name of the hotel, but a massive, massive hotel, like could sleep thousands of people. And they rented out the banquet hall there, and all of the outbacks that were basically in Maryland would come there. So all the GMs, all the way down to the dishwashers and the busboys, and it was a big corporate party. And somebody brought acid, and so there was like this little acid crew uh, of maybe like 15 or 20 of us that were all in this one particular hotel room. And, you know, of course, there's weed and there's coke and there's pills and there, there's all sorts of drugs there. But for a lot of us, it was like an acid night. That was the plan. That's what we were doing. And this was my, I want to say maybe my second or third trip. So I wasn't I wasn't really experienced. I had a couple mushroom trips. But with LSD, I wasn't that experienced. And I took, I can't remember if it was two or three hits. But I, but I went in. It was a full acid trip. And that trip was... It was a mix of good and bad. There were some really cool experiences on that acid trip. We, we put on, what's it called? Wild Discovery or like, like plant, I think it was Planet Earth. I think it was Planet Earth, which was new at the time. These like hyper slow motion cameras. Um, I watched a wildebeest and a fucking crocodile roll out of the TV on the ground in front of me. Um, oh man, As I, colors and textures and shape changing. You know, I experienced a lot of those first classic psychedelic distortions for the first time. It was some really, really cool shit. But that that trip also had a couple of dark turns in it. Um, at one point, a girl walked past me in the hotel room. Come on, I'm, I'm 17, right? So not really prepared to deal with a lot of these things. A girl walked past me. She had earrings on. And the earrings were swinging. And then they turned into flies. And then all of a sudden, her entire head had flies around it because she was, like, dead and rotten. And, like, shit like that, you know? Like... <laughs> What do you do with that when you're 17? So yeah, after that particular thing with the flies, I remember like wanting to go outside and uh, try walking through a, an old hotel. The hallways on acid, oh my God, terrifying. The elevator opened and smoke poured out of it. It was like a dungeon. And I finally made it outside. And then I remember my my speech was coming out of my mouth in 3D bubble letters, but backwards. So the end of my sentence was coming out first, right? Like, oh my God, weird shit like that. It was a very, very peculiar trip, but it was a mixture of good and bad. And so I think maybe a month later, I decided to do an acid trip uh, alone at my house at night. And I'll spare you the details, but that acid trip went horribly wrong, horribly wrong. I felt uncomfortable from the first hour, and I basically, I fought back. I fought that acid trip for 13 hours. And so it was absolute misery. It was a, by all means, it was a bad trip start to finish. I was utterly terrified, and it left me with a lot of residual anxiety. So much so that I desperately wanted to become acquainted with sobriety again. I associated everything that would alter my state of mind with a state of anxiety. If I'm not at this baseline of sobriety, if I can't find mental stability, then you know, I don't, I'm not interested in, in getting stoned. I'm not interested in like altering my state of consciousness. And so after that, that bad acid trip, that I, the one that I had alone, you know, I had smoked weed a couple times and I had severe panic attacks from that. Um, really, my, my psyche had just been rocked and I, I wasn't stable enough to handle any sort of external substances. So it made me run towards sobriety at full speed. 
And all around this same time, I had actually just graduated high school a year early. I had taken summer courses so I could get out of high school. I was miserable. I really didn't like high school. And there was a, I never failed any classes. So I realized that if I took a couple of summer courses, I could graduate a year early. So I had graduated a, a, a year early. So this bad acid trip was sort of right after I had graduated high school, but I had just barely turned 17. And in that summer, I had decided that I was going to move to Florida with a couple other friends of mine who were going down to Full Sail University, which is a story for another day, but it's an an audio slash film slash game development school. It's like a media school. Um, I absolutely hate Full Sail. I wouldn't recommend it to anyone on the planet. But I had already planned to go to Full Sail, and if I remember this correctly, I had already signed papers and everything. So... I mean, the anxiety from this acid trip, though, was so bad that it was sort of up for debate whether or not I was able to go and move away down to full sail. But I kind of fought for myself and I said, no, 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 I want to do this. I'm not changing my plan. I want to leave Maryland. I want to leave this place. And if I need to do it sober, then I'll do it sober. And so I leaned heavily into Christianity at the time because that was my foundation. That was the mode that I felt most comfortable operating within. Um, And so I sort of felt like a newly sober but weirdly anxious Christian. And at 17, I moved down to Florida. Really, I had... It was with like the same week that I turned 18 was when I had moved down to Florida to start college. And I met a girl within maybe two or three months of being down here. And I was relatively lonely. You know, I, I didn't I did move down with friends, but they were older than me. And they also were in uh, they were in the film program and I was in the audio program. So I really didn't get to see my actual friends as much as I had thought. And it's a full time school. So you do make a lot of friends at school. But um, I, basically, I found a girl and I started a, another new relationship. Now, that relationship was good and bad, as many relationships are. It was just sort of a mix. We had a lot of things in common, and, and I don't want to say it was, it was all bad. But her and I dated for two years, and the last maybe two and a half years, but the last six months or so of that relationship were, were very rocky. And I began drinking a little bit because it had been enough time since I had drank last where I didn't really... I didn't really remember why I needed to be sober. It didn't really resonate with me anymore. It felt like, well, what am I so scared of? Like, why am I sober? Like, why don't I smoke weed, right? And so her and I smoked a little bit, and we drank a little bit. But she was a very different kind of partier. She was a um, a binger in a lot of ways, which was weird for me because I, I, I wasn't that, that kind of partier at all. But in the... In the later six months of us dating, you know, this is age really 18 and 19 was most of, of when we dated, um, she, would, she would disappear. This happened three or four times where she would just not come home, not call her parents, not call me, not answer text messages, and just go party with like these other group of friends, and we didn't know who those friends were. It was really weird. It was a strange thing to deal with, but that was how, how she tended to party. And when she would do that, I would sort of spite drink at her, right? Which is the thing all alcoholics can relate to this. You drink at the world, right? You drink at somebody. You go, oh yeah, really? Fuck you, right? And you you shoot yourself in the foot. So I did that a lot. And that was really when I I began getting drunk again, when her and I would have these problems. Um, You know, I did did the same same move that I did for that, that first breakup. I would drink. I would drink about it. I would drink at them in anger a lot of times. And Sparing you any details, you know, she ultimately ended up leaving me for another guy. It was muddy. I don't necessarily want to say that she cheated on me, though she was certainly 
hanging out with this dude. And, you know, we we were young. I mean, I think she might have been 20. She was a little bit older than me. But in the grand scheme, extremely young. And we were both unstable in a lot of ways in our belief systems, our relationships to substances. We were very, very young. And I was not without blame in that relationship either. I definitely did some of the more... Probably some of the stupidest shit I've ever done in the context of a, of a relationship was done in that relationship. And so she ended up leaving me, and within three or four months of her leaving me, she was um, engaged and pregnant to that guy. And I knew that guy, so this was, this was a painful one. And obviously, I did the same move. I, had, I, I played the only card that I knew how to play, and that was, well, I'm just going to get fucked up. And so I went right back into uh, this world of partying. But this also synced up with an interesting life event in that very shortly after we had that breakup, maybe within a month or two, I had joined a band. And this particular band was a party band. We partied a lot in this band. Now, it was an interesting band because it was a hybrid of an original project with original songs. We were trying to make it, so we were uh, talking with record labels, and we had management, and we were playing shows, and we went on small tours. But we also had a big arsenal of covers because this was like a beach-themed pop band. So in Florida, you can make a lot of money doing that sort of stuff, bar gigs and little tiki lounges and beach parties and things like that. So we did a weird mix, and we were honestly able to play four or five gigs a week. So it was it was profitable. It became my full-time job to do that. And you know, while I had dated um, the second girlfriend, the one that had that was now pregnant and, and engaged, right? She had, um, you know, d- during that relationship, I had had a job that was the automotive photography job, taking pictures of, of cars. But I got laid off from that job right around the same time of the breakup. So it was another one of those reasons that I fell so heavily into drinking again because, you know, life just hit me with a fucking a haymaker or two haymakers, I suppose. And so this band felt like, um, it felt like a gift, you know? It felt like I have this, this new passion, this new thing to lean into. It motivates me, um, it, it gave me a brand new social circle immediately, but it came drenched in alcohol. That whole situation came with a lot of drinking, a lot of partying. Not only was it part of the environment and the social circle that was that band, but it was also, alcohol was like compatible with a work day. Drinking was part of the deal when you're playing a bar gig or you're playing a show on the beach, you know, <laughs> drinking is totally acceptable. So that happened a lot. It was just, uh, I was able to get drunk and justify it a whole lot. Now, one of the very first gigs that I played with that band was a, was a gig down in Key West, Florida. And this was like, it was a beach music festival. It was called Tiki Fest. I highly doubt it still exists anymore, but it was a, it was a very big, you know, I don't want to say like two or 3,000 people, like a beach music festival. And we got this gig. We played out on a dock with like wakeboarders behind us. It was really cool. And, you know, I remember getting extremely drunk. I got so drunk. I actually, I broke my big toe at this event running through a parking lot with flip-flops on. I mean, like cracked my big toe in half. So I, I was drunk, drunk, drunk. And... At this particular event, though, I have this weird, specific memory of being hammered, absolutely hammered, and there was a band playing that was like, I want to say like snarky puppy-ish, like funk, hip-hop, fusion-y kind of music, and I remember dancing, which is very weird because I don't 
dance. Not I'm just far too introverted to to do that. Even now I don't dance. But but I was hammered, and I remember feeling deeply liberated, deeply liberated that I had gotten over this relationship, that I had I had let it go, I had moved on, and that my new life was this band. But this is a tremendously positive association that happened. It's why this part of the story is important because not only did I associate this band uh, with moving on from this relationship, with letting go of, of some of that toxicity, that, that you know, the pain that I had been caused from that relationship, but I also associated a lot of positivity with alcohol because that's what this band was. It was partying. And in a lot of ways, that felt liberating, and it felt free that I could just get fucked up whenever I wanted, that there were no rules, there were no restrictions, life didn't have to be this hard, that in some ways, life was a party, and that is awesome. That feels way better than the weight and the burden that I had come from, uh, from this relationship, which had caused me a lot of pain. And so in this one moment, you know, feeling that that liberation, that freedom, feeling that 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 boulder roll off of my back. You know, I associated that with this band and this new social circle that I had, but I also associated it with alcohol, that partying and that whole world is what freed me of the burden of that relationship. That was my interpretation of it at the time. And I might not have pieced all of this together in the moment. I highly doubt that I was that introspective at the time, but I remember feeling free feeling really, really free and happy that I had moved on and found something different, found something better. And so the thing to take away from this is that, you know, there are many positive associations that happened with alcohol along the way. It wasn't all bad. And for somebody who's listening that has never had any experience with addiction or with addiction psychology or, or drug use, you know, it's really easy to look at a, to look at a tweaker or some guy nodding off on heroin and go, who would ever fucking do that? Who would do that? But you have to remember that that's never how it starts. It always starts positive. It always starts positive. Think about somebody in a shitty relationship where them and their girlfriend or whoever, where they fight all the time. They're just miserable. They're at each other's throats. Okay, that's not what the first date looked like. The first date was great right? So was the second one. So was the third one. I bet, you know, I bet there was all sorts of awesome shit that happened until it wasn't so awesome anymore. And addiction is very much like this. It, it starts off what, with what appears to be a healthy relationship, right? That drug serves you in some way. You, you get something out of this that is overwhelmingly positive. The question is, how long does that sustain itself? Because these relationships have a have this ability to turn sour on you. And as we'll get a little further into this story, I'll explain to you how, how this relationship with me, you know, me and alcohol, how it began to turn sour over time. Now, at this point, though, you know, I'm, I'm 19-ish, and it was not sour. It wasn't sour at all. It was actually still pretty awesome for a while. And I, I again, began to collect these really positive but relatively extreme stories from the experience that, experiences that I had in this band because this was a wild band. We partied a whole lot. Everybody in the band partied a lot. It, it, was, a, it was a wild group of guys. So I'll give you one story from this band just as an example of, of how wild this group was. We were managed by a guy uh, who 
was the talent buyer at a club here in Orlando called Firestone. And Firestone was a venue or a club that had a capacity of like 2,000 people. It was about the size of a house of blues, so a relatively big venue. And this guy was the talent buyer, and he would very oftentimes get us into shows at Firestone, side stage and backstage, and it was, it was really cool. One of the shows we went to was a Wiz Khalifa show. This was before he was like, like in like superstardom, really. And man, you're not allowed to smoke weed at those shows, but that's kind of a joke at a Wiz Khalifa show because weed smoke is like pouring out of the building. I mean, you can drive by, like it looks like a power plant. Like it's just absolutely absurd. But the bouncers who worked there were these absolute savages, like six foot six, 400 pound guys. And they would just walk through the crowd and just pull blunts out of people's mouths. And they would have a flashlight and a taser and go empty your pockets. And so I'm, I'm not kidding. They, they would come up to the offices of this venue upstairs and they would have baskets with like nothing short of $2,000 worth of pot in them, like 50, 60 blunts, giant bags of weed, bowls, lighters, joints, you name it, edibles, like stuff people would bring just to throw on stage to Wiz Khalifa. And we would just we would just go up in the office and smoke all of it because everybody that worked there and all of the subsequent friends groups, everybody smoked pot. They just had this weird power in the hierarchy that was this venue where they could just go collect it from people down in the crowd and then bring it upstairs. So, you know, those are some some experiences like that were just really fun. And, you know, another story, ironically, at that same venue, um, we had been there kind of under the same circumstances. Our management had got us in to this uh, to this show. The show was Nile. Nile is a like a Swedish death metal band. I don't know if they're Swedish, but um, it's it's just like black metal, right? And we didn't listen to black metal. We were in a beach pop band, so to us this was just like very novel and very fun. But we got absolutely shit faced, and we made it into the green room which was kind of side stage here. And as Niall is playing, we found all of their catered food. It was from Pollo Tropical, which is like tropical Caribbean fast food. And so there's rice and there's chicken wings and, you know. And this turned into a group of like 10 of us, our band and sort of a lot of our other friends of the band, turned into a mosh pit of our own making inside of the green room, which then turned into a food fight with Niles catered food. So we're grabbing hands of beans and rice and smashing it on each other's heads as we mosh around this green room. Destroyed the green room. I mean, this is absolute dog shit behavior. This is horrible, you know? We're all quite literally like, I don't know, between 18 and 23, right? So we're very young, but this was a wild group of friends. And so we're, we're moshing and smashing food all over the place, get kicked out of the venue. I remember throwing up in the parking lot. You know, it, it many, many stories like this. And it's weird. It's, it's these weird hybrid stories of like, you can tell it one of two ways. You can tell it as like an extremely funny, absurd story. Or you can look at it from the dark side of like, what in the fuck is wrong with these people? Like, this is absolutely horrible behavior. But those stories have value to me. You know, I associate them positively in in many, many ways. And I just kept collecting these stories. And so I'm in this wild band for like a year. And at some point, while I was in that band, and that was sort of my my full-time job was that band. I had a handful of drum students on the side. But really, that was my full-time job. 
um, I had got a new house and I was renting it with some friends and I also got a new girlfriend and this we're going to call heartbreak number three. So the band is going, I'm with this girl for a while and her and I, the whole relationship was really themed around partying. She was in a deep party phase. I was deep, deep into my party phase. We drank nine times out of 10. If we were hanging out, we were both getting absolutely plastered. It was just the nature of the relationship. We were young and we liked to drink. And that relationship was very, very chaotic. It was the most dramatic relationship because that's what happens when you pour alcohol on top of stuff. It comes with a good amount of drama. So it was very dramatic. Um, A good amount of fighting, a good amount of like mock breakups where we're not together right now, you know, a lot of weird shit like that. And I wasn't used to that level of chaos, but, but again, it just comes with the territory when you have a, when you have so much alcohol in the center of a relationship and life was chaos. It was a constant party. Day drinking was very normal. Um, there was no, no real schedule. Everything was just all over the place. Now, after about a year of this, a girl and I dated for, for almost a year, um, something happened in one particular month. And in this month, you know, the guy that ran the band that I was in, he had been taking a little bit more of this solo musician direction. He had been booking gigs by himself a bit more. And he had also transitioned where he didn't really want a band unit. He wanted hired guns. And he kind of knew that I wasn't going to do that, that I felt very much like in the band, like this was a family sort of thing. And so he began hiring other drummers to play these gigs. And he did it without telling me at first. And so that that hurt a lot. You know, it just felt like my core friends group and the leader of that group had sort of like, I don't know, really disrespected me. So him and I got in some fights. We were both very, very stubborn and hard-headed. And ultimately, you know, over the course of a few weeks, it just became clear, like, I'm not in this band anymore. I'm not in this band at all. And right around that same time, this uh, this girl that I had been with decided to for lack of better words, like take a gig that was out of state. So she ended up moving away and we ultimately broke up. And then all within that same month, um, I had had these roommates at the house that I was at, but they had kind of like sublet their rooms from previous roommates. So really they, they weren't on the lease. They were able to just leave and they did. Now they weren't trying to to hurt me necessarily, but it did hurt me because I ended up in this giant house alone. And within the span of 30 days, I had no band, which meant no money. I had no girlfriend, which meant, you know, very lonely and heartbroken. And I had no roommates. So I got several months behind on my bills. I mean, probably three months went by where I couldn't pay any bills. My electric was shut off numerous times. Water was shut off numerous times. It was a bad situation. It was, it was, really the only time in my adult life where I had to get um, I had to get financial help from my mom just to get out of that house because it was a, a big, relatively expensive house, and I couldn't afford it. I had no roommates, um, I had no income, and I was heartbroken. So we plunged deeper into alcoholism. I leaned into the, the only tool that I had, right? So I'm drinking seven days a week at this point, mostly alone uh, because again, you know, the, the social element of drinking was really tied up in that band. Now that the band was gone, now that the girlfriend was gone, now that I'm single, well, I'm definitely still drinking and I'm drinking seven days a week, but I don't have many people to do that with. So 
you know, I drank alone quite a bit, and it was it was absolutely seven days a week from this point forward. But there was somewhat of a silver lining, at least as I perceived it at the time, and that was that this lease ended. I could get out of this giant house that I couldn't afford. My mom had helped me catch up on my bills, so I felt kind of like I had a fresh start. And I moved across town to a different neighborhood, and in that neighborhood, um, me and a, a good buddy of mine, his name is Pete, Pete and I got our first house together. Now, this house... <laughs> well, first of all, the coolest thing about this house is that it was walking distance from Sam Ash Music, and I actually got a job there. So I felt, you know, like things are looking up. I got my job at Sam Ash working in the drum department in drum sales. I got a house that I can actually afford with a roommate, and I'm walking distance from the house. I only had a motorcycle this whole time. I never actually had, had a car in Florida. So, um, you know, it was really nice to not have to take a bike, you know, all, all over the city. So I, I was walking to work, working at Sam Ash. I liked my job. I was good at it. And things seemed to be falling into place. I could afford my bills now, a little bit more stability. But alcohol remained constant. I was still drinking seven days a week. I was drinking alone for the most part because Pete, my roommate, was you know a normal person. So he wasn't drinking that often. He would just have a beer with dinner. He was that kind of guy. So as my drinking increased, you know, my social isolation also increased. Um, I would go out to bars sometimes and drink alone, but but more often than not, it was at home. I would drink on the back porch. I would drink in my room. I would drink watching a TV show with my roommate and not even tell him that I have vodka in this cup. Right? I, I drank all the time. It was just an absolute staple. And this is when things got the most the most dark, because I began to realize that I could do this forever, that I'm capable of having a job, I'm capable of paying my bills, I'm capable of sustaining this in such a way that I bet I can keep doing this. And if it sucks now, which it did, I was, I was never diagnosed, but I would, ima I would imagine I was deeply depressed. I could keep doing this. I wonder what it feels like 20 years from now if I keep going down this road. And I so, you know, I started entertaining these kind of thoughts. Like, how long am I going to do this? Because it, in one, one perspective, it does seem sustainable in that I, I'm, my life isn't falling apart. Objectively, it's not falling apart. I do have this job. I am paying my bills. But at the same time, like, there's an element of misery here that, that I can't seem to figure out. I, I bet that spanning this out across time, I bet I can still sustain it. It just gets more miserable. And I don't know how, how far down this hole I want to go. I don't know if I want to keep digging down this hole. And right around this time was also when a lot of existential crises began to happen. You know, I, I, I began to get very curious. For me, when I, let me put it this way. For me, when I'm depressed... Or I really don't like using that word because I think people throw it around way too casually. I've also never been diagnosed depressed. I also think sometimes life can just suck and you're sad and that's not what depression is. And by all means, life sucked and I was sad. So I don't know if I want to fill in the blank with depression there. But for me, when life isn't going well, at least historically in the context of my life, I tend to get philosophical I tend to go down darker philosophical wormholes and try to answer some much more difficult questions. That's what I try and do. So at this period in my life, I spent countless hours on a back porch, smoking cigarettes, drinking alone, and Googling. Googling questions like, is God real? 
Why should I be a Christian? Why does anything matter? Does prayer work? I mean, some, some, well, very fundamental questions, some very difficult questions to answer as well, questions that people can sit around and debate for a very, very long time. And as I began to explore some of these philosophies and ideas about existence, about the nature of life, about the concept of God, as I began to explore those, I ultimately came to this conclusion that I don't think I can call myself a Christian anymore. I don't think I'm comfortable using that word because it came with so many so many caveats. It was like, well, I, I am a Christian, but I don't believe this, and I also don't believe this, and I don't believe this, and I don't believe this. And it became to the point where I would have felt like I had, if I had to say that I was a Christian, I had to also clarify 10 other things about Christianity that I took issue with. And as those things began to stack up, it became impossible to justify the statement that I am a Christian. That felt fundamentally untrue. Because, realistically, there are many non-negotiables within Christianity. Totally non-negotiable things that you must accept in their entirety or you are immediately outside of the framework of Christianity. So there must be an omnipresent creator of the universe. Non-negotiable, there must be, and only one. Then he must have had a son. That son must have been named Jesus. He must have been born of a virgin. Um, He must have died to pay for the sins of humanity. That was on a cross. He was buried in a tomb. He was resurrected three days later and he rode to heaven on a chariot of fire and your acceptance of him and this entire story is the only way you get to spend eternity with the creator. I I can't buy all of that. And I realized this at the time, that this story is too complex, too nuanced, and too absolute for me to buy in its entirety. There are too many flaws within that story for me to accept this as is. Now, I was still able to conceptually wrap my mind around the concept of creation, that there is a a creator of the universe. That didn't necessarily bother me. I could wrap my eyes around the archetypal story that was Christianity in that I understand that there is there are problems with human nature that may need some sort of redemption and that natural law and human nature must have come from somewhere with some sort of origin. I could wrap my, my mind around a lot of these ideas, even the archetypal story of the father and the son and mother earth. You know, I could wrap my mind around some of these things, but the fundamental details that are required to call yourself a Christian, the absolute truths that are non-negotiable, like that Jesus died on the cross and rode to heaven on a chariot of fire to pay for your sins, I couldn't do that anymore. I just couldn't do that. I did not take that story for exactly what it is. And as I began to have this cognitive dissonance and you know, attempt to contort Christianity to fit my own conclusions, I realized that I could no longer call myself a Christian. That didn't make any sense. And so I plunged deeper into this pit of alcoholism because that felt so deeply unsettling to admit to myself or even to my friends or to the fucking universe that I didn't know who I was anymore, that I had been wrong. I had been completely wrong for 15 years. And of course, that comes with that dark reality that you realize you've been talking to what you perceive to be an imaginary friend, that you have wasted your time 
speaking to no one. You've invested in a relationship with nothing, right? And so this is deeply painful. And I did make attempts to hang on to portions of my identity that I had gained through Christianity. So I think I would have still told you that I believed in some version of a God, some version of a creator. But the Christian story and the fundamental philosophy of Christianity, I ultimately rejected that. And so this combined with the breakup and the band and, you know, pour a ton of alcohol on the top of that, it was misery. It was by far the lowest point in my life. And I was worried that this would just get worse and worse and worse. And to be honest, I think I was right. I think it would have gotten worse and worse and worse um, if I didn't do what I had done. So obviously, what I did was decide to go to rehab. But it's here that I want to sort of circle back and tell you about some of these things, some of these red flags, these moments that had happened that collectively led me to the decision to put myself in rehab because that is not an easy decision. It's it's far easier to justify why you don't need to go to rehab than it is to justify why you do need to go to rehab. And, you know, in hindsight, any one of these red flags, I have six of them, any one of these should have been enough or should be enough for someone to say, what in the fuck is going on? I have to do something here. This is not acceptable. But it took six of these for me to reach my own personal rock bottom. And rock bottoms are something, it's a concept that that I'm going to revisit later in this podcast series. I think we're going to hit it a little more in episode, episode three. But ultimately, what you need to know about rock bottoms is that everybody has different ones. For some people, rock bottom, where where life is so bad that you're going to do something different. For some people, that's death. For some people, there is no there is no real discernible rock bottom. You know, you can look at somebody that has a, a behavioral problem, a drug problem, a psych- psychological problem, or they're just doing stupid shit. You can say in a number of ways, and you might say, "Well, why wouldn't you change it? Why wouldn't you? Do, why wouldn't you get out of that relationship? Why wouldn't you stop going to this job that you hate? Why wouldn't you you stop living this way?" And in so many ways, you know, you can sum that up by saying, well, hey, man, they're not at rock bottom. That's not rock bottom for them. It has to get way worse for them to even acknowledge that that you might need another, another option here. You might need to explore an alternative path here. And so for me, it took these six things for me to hit my rock bottom. I wish that my bottom was higher. I wish that it only took one of these things. And of course, I'm grateful it didn't take a hundred of these things. I'm grateful I didn't have to completely fuck my life up in order to realize that I needed to go to rehab. So here's the six things that happened. The first one actually happened when I was in that band. And we played a particular gig. It was down in Sarasota, Florida, maybe Bradenton, Florida, but that sort of area. We played a gig at this little bar and I got completely blacked out at the gig. I don't remember packing up. I just remember being at the bar, ordering a drink, and that was it. I don't remember anything else. And I woke up on the interstate in the back of somebody's car, and it was a different car than the one I had rode there in. So in my weird blacked out sort of state, I remember thinking that I have been kidnapped, right? This is how, this is how out of touch with reality I was. I had been kidnapped, and these two men in the front seat were gonna hurt hurt me somehow. That's what I thought, at least for a moment. And while driving on the interstate, I started swinging at these 
two men from the back seat. I didn't say anything. I just woke up and started trying to fight these two guys. Now, of course, they started screaming, Adam, we're your friends, we're your friends. They were two guys in the fucking band. And, you know, it was, everything was fine. Didn't wreck the car. I didn't actually hurt anybody. I was so drunk, I doubt I could have, you know, hurt a kitten. But it was, it was a scary moment. I remember having a weird, a weird little crisis about it internally in that, man, this is a, a real lack of control, a real lack of control. I, I never would have thought that I could be this deeply confused about some situation and that it would result in me punching my friends. How do we get here? How do we get here? How do we get to the point where I'm swinging on my friends in a car? How did this happen, right? It was just a real, a really scary lack of control and that bothered me. That one bothered me a lot. So that was red flag number one. Red flag number two, I had been coming home from a bar one time on my motorcycle, borderline blacked out. I mean, really, really drunk. I, I never drove uh, cars drunk. I never did that. But I drove my motorcycle drunk. And I justified that at the time as though, you know, I'm only endangering myself here. The odds that I'm going to hurt somebody else being drunk on a motorcycle are much lower. And therefore, that makes it okay. This is absolute bullshit. Um, it, it is a crime in the same way that driving a, a car drunk is a crime, as it should be. I'm very fortunate that I didn't go to jail, that I, that I still have a driver's license, that, um, that I never got caught, to be honest. This is the absurd rationale of a person who's living in the depths of addiction. You, you justify things, you rationalize things that don't make any fucking sense at all. It's weird. It's weird. You know, my, my mind was swimming in alcohol for several years. So, you end up believing stupid shit like that, that you can just drive around drunk all the time and it's on a motorcycle, so that makes it okay. But, it's one particular time I was driving home and I pissed myself. At 21 years old, I pissed myself on my motorcycle and I, I had no control. I physically lost control of my body. You know, I, I remember thinking, there's no way you, you got to pull over. You got to go. And I couldn't. I couldn't. I lost control of the mechanics of my own bladder. And, you know, it definitely hit me as I'm taking off piss-soaked clothes in my early 20s, you know, when I got home. You know, what What the fuck is going on here? Like, what? that's a hard one to rationalize, that, that this is normal. Is this normal to piss yourself on your motorcycle? It hit me. That one hit me weird. That was a red flag. And in hindsight, that, that stuck out. It was a moment for me. Red flag number three is like kind of funny and also like maybe the least funny of all of them. Uh, and that is that I spent an entire night ashing a full pack of cigarettes, chain smoking, on a can of gasoline. A one gallon can of gasoline filled to the top with the lid off, ashing on top of it the whole time. And you know that... I see both sides of this. Is that funny? Yeah, it's kind of fucking funny. It's also like unbelievably dangerous because just imagine, just imagine if that fucking thing goes off. That's not just a fire. That's an explosion. An explosion and you're covered in gasoline, third degree burns. That will change your life. It absolutely would have burned the house down. You know, not funny. Not funny in a lot of contexts. And also goddamn hilarious. <laughs> what an idiot. How... How unbelievably stupid of a thing to do. If you heard that news story, you know, drunk, 
drunk 20-year-old sits on his porch and ashes into a can of gasoline. You would say, what a goddamn idiot. How stupid, right? That was a thing that I did. And I, I hit me the next morning when I went out onto the back porch and I see a can of gasoline covered in cigarette ash. It hit me, right? It made me realize something that, man, this is just, I'm somehow really far away from common sense, somehow. And the fifth red flag was when I became reacquainted with panic attacks. I hadn't had panic attacks since really high school, since that bad acid trip, but you know, the, the sense of fog, right, that comes with being drunk all the time, it led me into this, this type of anxiety that I was unfortunately very familiar with. So for me, the type of anxiety that I have is described as DPDR or depersonalization and derealization where life feels like a video game. That's what my panic attacks feel like. Very similar to if you've ever been way too high, way too high. And the, the fearfulness that comes with the lack of control where you feel very out of touch with your own body. You feel euphoric in a way that is not comfortable or enjoyable. Um, for me, a panic attack feels like I can't recognize my own hands. My voice doesn't sound like mine. It's as though I am a spectator in my own consciousness, as though I am playing the video game that is me, but I am not me. Also becomes very hard to recognize people and faces. You become very out of touch with your own reality. It is deeply uncomfortable. And so the fogginess, the lack of mental clarity that is quite present in the depths of addiction, especially with alcohol, it's a deep fog that you operate within. You know, that sort of led me back to this, this DPDR type of anxiety. And I had panic attacks while I was working at Sam Ash many times. In talking with people, I would have a panic attack and have to like leave the building and go get air. And so I was embarrassed and I was very scared because I didn't, I didn't know how to go talk to a doctor without telling them that I definitely have a problem with alcohol. To complain about being anxious, but to not include the detail that I'm getting fucked up all the time, that seemed like, well, they're not going to help me. I'm either going to have to lie to them and, you know, it, it just seemed like... I'm going to have to quit drinking, and I, that's not really on the table for me. So I became kind of trapped in this, this anxious circle. Sometimes I would wake up with panic attacks, and a lot of it was, again, just depersonalization and derealization. I was in a very deep fog that was, uh, that was very uncomfortable, and it led to recurring panic attacks. So it was very scary. But the sixth red flag and the biggest one was the seizure. I had my first seizure when I met up with some friends, to get a drink at a bar. And for some reason I hadn't I hadn't drank very much the night before. I had actually drank very little. I was proud of myself that I only had a couple drinks, right? And I had gone to bed kind of early, so like 10 p.m. Woke up, had a very long day doing something. I don't remember what. But I didn't make it to this bar until like 9 or 10 p.m. So it had been like over 24 hours since I had had alcohol. And I remember feeling weird, feeling really weird on the way to this bar, but as I was walking into the bar, I ran into some other friends in the parking lot, and so I'm talking in the parking lot with people, and I just fucking hit the floor. I hit the floor, I seized up, you know, arms locked up, toes pointed straight, head slammed into the ground, and 
I woke up a couple minutes later, and you know, my friends had almost called the, the, an ambulance. I really don't know why they didn't, but fortunately they didn't. And I didn't know what happened. I didn't know what to tell them. My sort of response, as, as was ironically my response to everything, was, well, let's just go get a drink. So I go inside this bar. My calves hurt. Forearms hurt. Felt like I've been in a car accident. And I take a single shot, and I feel perfect. I feel absolutely perfect. There was nothing wrong. Whatever mood I was in, whatever weird fogginess I had, whatever that fainting thing was about, now I'm fine. Totally fine. I had a shot of tequila, and I felt absolutely perfect. And that, to me, was very scary because it was the first time that I knew I had evidence of a physical dependency to alcohol. And I had wondered many times if I was physically dependent. The problem was I had never... I had never ran the test, you know? I never actually tried to not drink, at least long enough to where I could really see what my body did without alcohol. I had drank seven days a week for that amount of time, right? I just didn't know. And so the first time that I accidentally went 24 hours without drinking, I had a seizure. And so I I knew, I knew that At that point, I had to do something. I had to make a change here. This is no longer sustainable at all. So here's what I did. The first person that I called was my mom. I knew that my mom had had many alcoholic brothers and family members, and and even though she had never had any issue with that, that she was at least had been in close proximity to people who had 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 those issues. So I anticipated that she would be relatively empathetic, and she was. Didn't feel judged. I said, mom, I think I need some help here, and I think rehab might be the move. So there's a cool part of this story here because my mom worked for a union, and we subsequently had ridiculous insurance. We weren't wealthy by any means, but when it came to all things healthcare, uh, I was very spoiled growing up. We basically had what I describe as the free program. I paid for nothing. There was no copay. There was no deductibles. It was healthcare for me until the age of 27 was ultimately free. And to paint a picture of how how ridiculous my insurance was, when I got dropped at age 27 from my mom's insurance, uh, I had the option to continue to pay and keep that same policy. And that policy was valued at $1,100 a month. So for whatever that's worth, if you want to pay $1,100 a month, it's basically free everything. And uh, that was the insurance I grew up on. And of course, at the time, I'm 21, going on 22. And so we realized that rehab is covered. Rehab is absolutely covered. But there's a few weird details here that as I began researching these different rehab facilities, you know, only a small amount of rehab facilities were in network, meaning they would pay for 100% of them. Most rehab facilities were out of network and they would pay about 70% of the cost of rehab and I would be responsible for the additional 30%. Now, rehab is very expensive. Even what you would describe as like a, a shitty rehab or a cheap rehab is still not that cheap. I mean, it's it's pretty expensive to have full-time live-in care with mental health counseling and medication and detox. I mean, it's not a cheap thing to do. But then I found a, a kind of a weird loophole in that if you have an insurance provider that is willing to pay 70 plus percent of the cost of rehab, the rehab facilities themselves are very oftentimes willing to waive the additional fees. And once I figured this out, I realized that they would pay 70% of the cost of rehab for like any rehab at all. 
So I began researching luxury rehabs. I'm talking rehabs that are $1,000 a day and up. I Googled top 10 rehabs in America. And I began calling these places. I quickly realized that while my insurance would only pay 70% of the cost, they were all, or most of them, were more than happy to waive the additional 30%. So what this translated into, this took me several weeks to figure this out, I can go to virtually any rehab that I want. That was the deal that I was in with my insurance, how good it was, and this willingness of these rehab facilities to negotiate and waive fees. Because rehab facilities... You know, it, it's a weird little spot of the the medical sector in that people are are so desperate to to get into these facilities that they're they're really willing to work with you and negotiate quite a bit. It's a thing that I didn't know until I began making those phone calls and talking with some of these um, intake specialists at at these rehab facilities. They're really willing to work with you, so it, it's a really cool detail. So after a lot of research, I decided to go to a rehab facility that is called Cirque Lodge. Cirque Lodge is ranked in the top five rehab facilities in the entire country. Um, I'm not going to tell you much about Cirque Lodge now. You are welcome to Google it, but it is by all means defined as what you would call a celebrity rehab. And I want to clarify, I had no celebrity of any kind at this point in my career. I had no YouTube following. I didn't do anything on the internet at all. I was just some drunk asshole who played in a band. That was my entire identity at the time. But through this insurance and through the, let's call it generosity of these rehab facilities, I was able to go to a rehab to go to a rehab that, you know, was valued somewhere in the ballpark of thirty to forty thousand dollars a month. And so I signed papers to go there for sixty days. It ended up being quite a bit longer than sixty days, but. Um, we're going to save that one for the next podcast. So the entire Cirque Lodge story is going to be part two. But I'd be lying if I said that even just knowing that I was going to a rehab that was considered a luxury rehab, a celebrity rehab, just knowing that I was going to a place that was in any capacity luxurious and not a prison, it did make it easier. It made it a lot easier. Of course, I didn't know I had no idea what I was going into. It's still scary. Just because they got horses and shit there doesn't make it not scary. Sobriety itself was scary. Getting to know myself was scary. So I was simultaneously anxious um, and a little bit excited. Some weird split between those two things. And terror, you know. It was a whole, whole lot of emotions. But, you know, I had... Uh, I had about two weeks left before I was going to go. From when I signed the papers, my flight was two weeks from then. So I quit my job. I went on my last hurrah. Um, partied, 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 partied. Um, I did weirdly meet a girl in those last two weeks. And it's an important thing to remember before we get into the next episode because it, she will actually come back into this story in somewhat of a relevant way. Uh, but I met a girl and we stayed in touch while I was in rehab, um, for better or for worse. But um, yeah, so so I had two weeks of partying, hanging out with this one particular girl, and um, and then I hopped on a plane and I I fucking went to Utah. I went to Utah, and that's where we're gonna leave this story for today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of All In with Adam. This was definitely a weirder episode. We're gonna make a hard pivot next week. Trust me, the Cirque Lodge story is not. Not that similar to this one. And uh, it's one that's going to be full of tears, which, God, is so ironic because, you know, I picked all of these heavy-ass topics to start out a podcast with. So there's some irony that I'm going to be, God, crying in like three out of five of the first episodes, which is a little, a little weak for my taste, but it's just sort of the nature of going down these, 
you know, <clears throat> deeper emotional philosophical wormholes. These are hard stories to tell sometimes. All of these stories I've told today are not that hard to tell. These are relatively easy and fun. But next week is not quite like that. It gets a little it gets a little brutal. But I'm excited to to revisit those stories. That's where the lessons are. They're buried in those stories specifically. And in these, I suppose, um, it depends on on how you want to look at some of them, right? It's a perspective deal. And before I let you go, a lot of people have been asking what they can do to support the podcast. Guys, the number one thing you can do is publicly share, comment, like, subscribe to be vocal about this podcast if you like it. I have had countless people email me personally or you know, write me messages on Instagram personally and say, I absolutely love the podcast, it's amazing, but they have not commented or liked or done anything publicly. So if, if you're wondering what you can do to support this podcast, please, please um, share an episode, share your favorite one, or even, I don't care if you share it, text it to a friend and say, hey, check this out, this is really cool. That to me is the best thing you can do to support any podcast of any kind. Um, just share it with somebody, let somebody else know that you enjoy this and I would very much appreciate it. All right. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. I love you. I'll see you next week.